describe God, to uh, present to us an image for God, is that of a mother bird spreading its wings and gathering um, the chicks or the babies under its wings. This is an image that's used multiple times in the Bible, and it's this beautiful image of caring, love, and intimacy. Let's look at uh, a couple of the times that it occurs. Let's start with Ruth 2, verse 12, where Ruth has introduced herself to Boaz. Boaz knows a bit of her story, how she left her homeland of Moab and traveled with her mother-in-law into a new land. And Boaz says to her, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So this beautiful image occurs multiple times, and it, it happens again in Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your unfailing love, O God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. And again in Psalm 57, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until danger passes by. And finally, in Psalm 61, verse 4, it says, 61, verse 4 would be great. I will read it to you. Let me live forever in your sanctuary, safe beneath the shelter of your wings. How many of you find this an incredibly comforting and beautiful image? Have you ever thought of it? Okay, how many of you have done the chicken dance? How many of you have received an embrace from your mother or father? How many of you have been protected by your mother and father? You were about to jump out on a busy street and they pulled you in and they protected you. How many of... Couple, all right. This is a tough crowd this morning. It's probably because I started with a really bad joke. But it's, to me, I think it's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful image of God's care for us, of God... Um, gathering us near to us. Often we think of God as distant, but to have a God who loves us so much, an image that he uses in his word is that of a mother bird tucking her babies in and around her. So it's an image of strength and protection, an image of tenderness and love, and it's an image of something more that we'll explore later. I've been thinking about this image. I've been reflecting on it as I take on more pastoral care duties after Stan's retirement. As we welcome a refugee family from Liberia, a refugee family we know very little about besides their names and their dates of birth and that two of them have some minor health concerns. So when, something, when I don't know something, what, guess what I do? Pardon? Wikipedia, right? I Google it. So I, I've been Googling images. Images of uh, Liberian refugees who are living in the Ivory Coast. 
and I've seen um, shelters that look very substandard. I've read about civil wars, civil wars that have killed 250,000 people and have made th hundreds of thousands of others flee. And just like when I have an ache that I look up on Google, my mind starts to go, right? I start to wonder, oh my goodness. Like, I know I'm surrounded by this group of amazing people that have stepped forward to love and support this family, but are we ready? Are we seriously ready to welcome in a family that has come from a country with one of the highest rates of sexual assault and rape? Are we ready? After hearing uh, Miriam's story, I'm not sure if you were here when Miriam came to talk to us about her experience as a refugee, her conversion um, to Christianity in Iran and then needing to escape and flee to Egypt and then finding a home in Woodstock. She said that she lived in London, she lived in Kitchener, she didn't experience racism. But when she came to our town, she experienced racism. So what's it going to be like for these extremely black African mother and children to walk into our pasty town? I wonder. And I'm only saying that you're pasty because I'm pasty, right? Like, we're, what's it going to be like? I can only imagine, and my brain runs, and I wonder, are we ready? But then I'm reminded by Scripture that God is our comfort and our strength. God is a place where we can take refuge. God wants to gather all humanity under his wings and protect them and love them and sustain them. Are we ready? So what does this image mean to us? What does it mean for us as a relatively prosperous congregation to welcome someone, a family, into our midst who have experienced extreme poverty? Why does suffering happen? And how can we make sense of possibly the incredible suffering that this family has endured? How do we understand where God is and who God is? And how can we convey this? How, we, how can we convey this image of God's presence and protection to each other, to our friends and to our neighbors? our neighbors even across the globe who are suffering. And to help us answer these questions, I'd like to spend the rest of our time together in Psalm 91. So pull out your phones, open your Bible apps, open your Bibles. You still use uh, Slate. Check out those Bibles, that, but let's turn our eyes to the screen and read Psalm 91 together. Psalm 91 says, Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. 
for he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and your protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand, though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you, no plague will come near your home. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hand so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. An incre incredible words in an incredible psalm. And if we look at the psalm, I think it can be divided into three parts. The first four verses make this remarkable promise that God alone is our refuge. God alone is our place of safety. And then verse 5 to 13 seem to um, outline how we can understand this promise. At first look, it kind of looks like, and they sort of seem to imply that if we trust in God, we won't experience what verse 5 talks about. We won't experience violence. Or verse 6 says we won't experience disease. Verse 10 talks about not experiencing harm or disaster. But is this really what Psalm 91 means? Does it really mean that no harm will come to those who trust God? Or, contra or on the other way of looking at it, does it mean that if we experience violence, disease, disaster, that we're not trusting God enough? I hope there's a resounding no running through your head. And I want to look at at least three reasons why this can't be the truth, why this can't be what Psalm 91 is saying. The first reason is because I would really like Psalm 91 to say that. I would really like to be able to protect my kids and my friends and my family and the congregation I love from disease. I'd love to protect all of you from disaster, from really difficult things happening in your life. I'd like to protect all of you from evil, from plagues. But I know that that's not within my power. And I know that the word of God is useful for forming and transforming us. The word of God does not always say what we want it to. And when we look at these things like evil, disease, violence, 
those things. If we look at the whole biblical story, we see that God does not always protect his people from those things. Let's look at Job for an example. In Job 1 verse 8, we see, we see God and Satan having a conversation. And God says to Satan, have you noticed my, my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless. He's a man of complete integrity. He fears God and he stays away from evil. So God uses Job as this example of a blameless, perfect human being who totally trusts in God and lives this um, life full of integrity that's blameless. But yet, as we read on in the book of Job, we see that Job experiences every one of the things that Psalm 91 says that will be protected from. Job has this, these horrible experiences, these disasters that come upon him. His animals are destroyed. His crops are obliterated. His children are killed. And he's wrought with a disease that makes him scratch his arms with shards of glass. But God says that he is a man of integrity. He's a blameless man who trusts God. So what's going on here? Job's friends accuse Job that he isn't trusting in God. And that's why these calamities are happening. They they try to convince Job that Job just needs to admit that he sinned or that he lacks trust and he just needs to curse God and move on. But God intervenes. God intervenes at the end of the book of Job and he says, Job, your friends are wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. And God doesn't really explain why all these things happen. But he says that he will be with him throughout his life. And the third reason I think we can't believe what we want to believe, that if we're trusting in God, if we're God's people, that nothing bad will happen to us, that our lives will be a bed of roses without the thorns, is because I think Satan wants us to believe that life will be easy if we trust in God. Then, Satan actually wants us to have a miserable experience of trusting in God. He wants us to be overwhelmed by disaster or disease or failures or bad things. I think Satan wants us to think that God has disappointed us so that we leave our relationship with God angry and frustrated. How can I make this claim about what Satan wants us to believe. I can make this claim because when Satan tempts Jesus after 40 days in the desert, he quotes Psalm 91. Luke 4, 9 to 11 says, Then the devil took him, him being Jesus, to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, and this is a direct quote from Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. He will order his angels to protect and guard you. 
and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. So there's something about Psalm 91 that's so important for us to understand that Satan even tries to use it against Jesus. I think Satan tries to use it against us. The devil tried to derail Jesus from his ministry, from continuing on, from healing people, from being God in the flesh, from going all the way in his love for us, all the way to the cross, from defeating death and sin by his resurrection. Satan didn't want to see any of that happen. And I think Satan would like nothing more than for us to be frustrated by the difficulties we experience in life and give up on God. The devil would like us to become angry, disappointed, and bitter. But God has something more for us. So what does it really mean? What does it really mean to live under the shadow of God's wings? What does it mean to be protect, protected by God? I think there's many biblical examples of this, but I want to share the biblical of, example of Joseph with you. So Joseph is this younger in the family, in a, this large family. He's a younger child, and he's a favorite son. If... Parents, if you're ever having difficulty with your children and you're feeling like your family is the most dysfunctional family on the face of the earth, open your Bibles to Genesis and read from Genesis 30 to 50 and you'll see that there are plenty of dysfunctional families in the Bible. Because uh, Jacob, Jacob isn't shy about showing his favoritism to his son Joseph. He gives him this amazing coach, and Joseph flaunts it in front of his brothers, and his brothers are angry and bitter and jealous and incredibly oh, aggravated by this obnoxious little brother. And Joseph goes on his merry entitled way until one day his brothers say enough. And some of the brothers want to kill Joseph. But an older brother, Reuben, says, no, let's just, let's just put him in this well. And then they have an opportunity to sell their brother into slavery. So Joseph goes from this favored son, this entitled, obnoxious young man, to a slave. But he's a smart kid, so he rises up in, in the ranks and he becomes a... Um, a slave in Potiphar's house, and he has some esteem, and he must have been a pretty good-looking guy because he attracts the, the attention of Potiphar's wife, and she makes some advances to him. And when he turns her down, she says that he made advances towards her, and then he's thrown into jail. So he has these years uh, and decades even of up and down and disappointment and crying out to God, but God seeming not to answer. God remains silent. And then Joseph interprets dreams and then rises up again and becomes second in command. And he, he develops this strategic plan so that um, the 
the country of Egypt, the people of Egypt are able to survive a famine and um, he's even able to save his brothers. God knew that Joseph in and of himself as an entitled obnoxious young man did not have the character it would take to save a nation, save nations. So God allowed these things to happen to mold and shape Joseph. And Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. You brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So even in his lifetime, Joseph could look back and say, a lot of lousy, disastrous things happened to me, but wow, like God's big enough to turn all of that garbage into something good. We have another verse that's very similar to that in the New Testament that's probably very well known to you. Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes everything to work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Bad things are bad things. And God didn't create our world for evil to prevail. But at times like in Job's life, like in Joseph's life, he does allow it to happen. He allows us to experience the consequences of sin. But God is mighty to save, and God can turn evil plans into good. He can turn evil intentions into things that shape and mold us into the strong, dependable people he needs us to be. God can lead something lousy into something glorious and great for his name, for his praise, for his honor. Jesus warned his closest followers that life following him would not be easy. That in Luke 21, he says, even those closest to you, your parents, your relatives, your friends, they'll all betray you. They, they might even kill you, and everyone will hate you because you are my followers. And then he says this radical thing. He says, not a hair, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. God, Jesus promises his followers some pretty tough things. He promises that they're going to face challenges. He promises us that we're going to face challenges. Sometimes God needs to strip away those things that we see as more important, more valuable in our lives than our relationship to him. God challenges us sometimes to examine what our first love is. Are there things for me that are more valuable than my identity in Christ? Are there things for you that are more valuable than your identity in Christ? Maybe your job, maybe your family, maybe the success of your kids as, as scholars or athletes, maybe your, stat, your status, maybe the car you drive, the house you live in. Do these things possess our souls? Because the thing about our souls is that only one thing can possess them. Only one thing can be your first love. 
if God had let Joseph to, left Joseph to be a spoiled, entitled, favorite son, he would never become the person of depth and power that was capable of saving nations from starvation. So how does this apply to us? What's God calling us to? We all need to recognize that God seeks to pr protect us, the real us, the us that will last forever. And God will allow things to come into our lives, even though we trust in him, despite our trust in him, despite our incredible love for him. We will experience disease. We will experience disaster. Psalm 91 fits into the rest of scripture that calls us to trust in God in trouble. Trust in God to be your shelter. To shelter you to become, to form you to become the depth of the person he's created you to be. We're coming to the end of Psalm 91 and when we look at the last three verses, we see that it's a bit of an oracle. It's a prophecy. It's a foreshadowing of what um, we can look forward to in Scripture. It, it makes us ask the question, how can we trust God? What does it mean to trust God? And in Psalm 91, verse 14, God says, the Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer I will be with them in trouble. So the psalm ends with, not that God will protect them from trouble, but that God will be with them in trouble. God will be with us no matter what we face, no matter what circumstances we encounter. And God promises in verse 16 to give us long life, to give us salvation. Psalm 91 points us forward. It points us to Jesus. It points us to look at and think about the lengths that Jesus went to be with us. Jesus Christ, God of the universe, became a baby. He grew up to be a man, a man who was betrayed, a man who experienced pain and rejection and suffering, a man who was beaten. A man who was killed, who took our place. A man who experienced trouble to deliver us from trouble for all eternity.